We've got all this new technology at the Buddhist Centre now. So um, one of the points I'm going to make later on is how we can make use of modern technology as modern Buddhists. So I'm a, a sitting uh, example of that, all wired up. Yeah. And actually that's partly why I decided to do a PowerPoint presentation today as an example of how we can use um, some of the uh, benefits of the modern world to help us communicate the Dharma, help us communicate Buddhism. So the observant amongst you will already have spotted that this title is different from the advertised title. Yeah. So the advertised title was Can Buddhism Survive and Thrive in a Secular World? But when I thought about it, I thought, actually, we don't live in a secular world. There's loads of people with faith in our world. So the issue I realised that I wanted to talk about was consumerism and materialism. And people of faith can still be bound by consumerism and materialism. So those are the topics that I'm going to address in this talk. So a little bit of an overview just to orient you. We've got a very fragile set of conditions up here. So <laughs> See what happens. I'm going to look at the state of the modern world um, and explore what Buddhism has to offer. Um, explore the Buddha's vision, what he saw when he gained enlightenment. And very importantly, how can we communicate that vision and perspective in the modern world? Very, very different to the time of the Buddha, two and a half thousand years ago. I'm going to look at the opportunities that I feel the modern world offers. Very often people talk about the disadvantages of the modern world, but in fact there's some great opportunities of the modern world. And finally I'm going to finish with, in a way, my main point, that I think we need living examples of the Buddha's teaching for it to survive and thrive, rather than it all just being words and theory. Okay, so I've got some pictures now. So, does anyone know what that is? A Buddha? It's a Buddha, exactly. So I think that that figure communicates a lot. It's an image, and it communicates stillness, it communicates very, being very centred, very uncluttered, there doesn't seem to be any images of consumerism or materialism in that image. Um, very symmetrical, very balanced and poised. So this is, of course, a very, these are classic images from the Buddhist tradition. And I think they're communicating a lot just as an image. This here is an image from our culture. Um, Norwich Cathedral, again, very sort of balanced, beautiful, dignified. Now, who knows where, who knows where that is? Trafford Centre. <laughs> Our modern temple, okay? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. We've gone from this beautiful statue of the Buddha and now we've got this extraordinary palace of delights and shopping. Who guess where that is? Okay, I'll tell you. It's Dubai Shopping Centre, the world's biggest aqua aquarium. Loads and loads of sharks that apparently are killing each other, which is very interesting, isn't it? They did this beautiful aquarium and they put all these sharks in and they eat each other. So that's been a minor hitch with the <laughs> launch of the world's biggest aquarium. But, you know, very, very luxurious. Okay, where do you think that is? Blue water, no. Close. It's actually in a, it's a shopping centre in Dubai, another one. Okay. And it definitely got some parallels with the cathedral look, hasn't it? They like the cathedral look, these shopping centres. Where do you think that is? Westminster, Westminster Abbey. Okay, that is a proper place of um, peace and silence. St Paul's Cathedral. Trafford Centre. <laughs> I mean, that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Even to these, those figures at the bottom, you've got sort of the statues, and here we've got tacky statues at the bottom. Okay. Okay. Trafford Centre. Went on your website to get some images, and this was the first page that flashed up. Summer Rescue VIP Night. Join our hunks and trunks for a sparkling glass of bubbly, music, lots of free goodies and special offers. Yeah? Very interesting, isn't it? Like rescue, this idea we're going to, re we're going to be rescued from our 
suffering, our discontent, in one night by hunk and trunk, <laughs> glass and bubbly, free goodies. Okay? He's quite hot, isn't he? <laughs> if you're otherwise inclined, the ladies in the back aren't bad either. So we come back to this question, can Buddhism survive and thrive in a consumerist and materialist world, and does it matter? You know, are hunks and trunks, maybe they're okay. I mean, there's actually nothing wrong with hunks and trunks. But is it going to solve your deepest existential questions? That's the question. So I would like to propose that, yes, it does matter, that uh, I think Buddhism has a lot to offer the world. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why I think it matters. One is resource limitations on the planet. So consumerism and materialism are very, very resource-hungry occupations. And this is a graph of the world's population and its projections. So the red is the high end of the UN projections, the yellow is the medium, and the green is the low end of the UN projections. So we're seeing the, on the low end, it's the baby boomers dying out, people like me dying out. And the world's population may settle down. But at its worst, it could be 14 billion by the end of this century. Currently, it's about 6.5 billion. I mean, that is phenomenal, isn't it? The average is um, 9, 9 billion. In 2000, it was 6 billion. So, sorry, in 2060, the average is 9 billion. So that means in 60 years, the world's population is going to grow by a third. And that's the average. That's not the high end of the projections. And already we're running out of certain uh, resources. I've just been to Australia recently, which is a very minimal, mineral-rich country, and it's just being stripped out. It's unbelievable. The, the, the level of mining in that country all being shipped off to China to build all our toys. And don't we like our toys? Okay. So resource limitations, I think, is a major issue why materialism and consumerism is problematic in the longer term. And, of course, when you get uh, a reduction in resources, you get wars, you get a struggle between people for the, these limited resources, and you get mayhem and catastrophe. Okay? So I think that's a very objective reason why we need to look elsewhere to seek um, inner peace and happiness other than the Trafford Centre. Also, dis-ease... It does seem that shopping isn't actually making people happy. Not in the deepest sense. In 2002, there were 154 million people in the world suffering from depression. And amazingly, it was the fourth most leading um, contributor to the burden of disease worldwide, which is really interesting when you think there's heart disease, there's cancer, there's diabetes, there's all kinds of other diseases, that depression, low mood, discontent was the fourth and by 2020 it's predicted to be the second largest burden of disease. Extraordinary. In 2002 there were 25 million people who suffered from schizophrenia, 91 million had alcohol abuse, 15 million drug abuse. Those are big figures aren't they? So I'd like to suggest that these things are because um, deep down we all want the same thing. All human beings are caught on this kind of axis of wanting freedom from suffering and to be united with that which is going to bring us contentment and happiness and fulfilment. And we think drugs will do it, we think alcohol will do it, we think shopping will do it. But that's the kind of existential issue that I think human beings are all grappling with, this this kind of knee-jerk, sort of pushing away of the unwanted and grasping hold of what we desire. And where consumerism's tricky is it does give the illusion of providing that. You think, I'll be happy when I get my new car. I mean, I've done this. I get a new car every three years because I'm on this government motability scheme and I would never, ever get a new car. I wouldn't be able to afford it. And usually about six months before my new car comes around, I start thinking, what colour shall I get? What sort shall I get? And I, I sort of get caught up in this. I, I really believe that this new car is going to make me happy. And then as soon as it arrives, there's that disappointment. You know, that kind of, oh, no, it hasn't solved all my problems. And I think we can go around that loop a lot in the modern world, um, retail therapy, all those kind of things. 
So it's a tricky one to solve because shopping does have the illusion of giving you happiness. And of course, it's, it's increasing, it's going global now. China and India are rapidly expanding countries in terms of um, being, raising, raising living standards and getting all the goodies that we have in the West. And they're massive populations. It's going to have a huge impact. So what does Buddhism have to offer? This is the next question, because obviously that's what I would like to suggest to you this afternoon, that Buddhism does indeed have an alternative um, um, solution to human existential issues. So it's very, very simple in a way, Buddhism, that it's vision and guidance on how to live in harmony with the way things are. This is what the Buddha saw through his own deep, deep, introspection. Um, it wasn't something he made up or invented or even sort of discovered for the first time, but it was more aligning himself with the natural way of things. I'll say more about that in a minute. Very significantly, he identified that the root of human dis-ease, dissatisfaction, discontent, is the mind, the human mind. It's not the Trafford Centre or the cars or anything else. It is the mind and the heart. The Buddha was a human being, like us, who lived in northern India two and a half thousand years ago and really grappled with the human situation, <clears throat> the human condition, really asked himself the deepest questions. You know, why do I suffer and how can I be free of that sense of discontent, dissatisfaction? So he did this through turning inwards and um, it's said that he invented meditation as we know it. There were meditative traditions before the Buddha, <clears throat> but this idea of, of turning, turning back on yourself, as it were, and looking very, very deeply into your own mind, your own experience, that was something that the Buddha discovered or invented. So he turned, he turned inwards, and then he, he not only looked at his mind, but he transformed his mind. He liberated his mind and aligned himself with the truth, which I often have this feeling that it's... It's very simple and very obvious, but we just don't get it. We don't see it. Um, there's, a, there's a phrase in the Zen tradition. It's like one in the water who cries out for thirst. It's kind of right here, right now, if we knew how to um, cleanse our perception. But we don't quite know how to do that. So he managed to do that. He taught it tirelessly. And it's said that he was an untamed free spirit who roamed the plains. I love that. So he found that he sort of liberated his mind, liberated his perception, and then roamed tirelessly teaching that he was a free spirit. However, and I think this is very important, that his approach was very pragmatic and very empirical. So he wasn't that interested in metaphysical questions. It was more, what is actually going on? What is going on in my mind, in my heart? Why am I reacting and how can I cut off at the root those tendencies of reactivity that we all have as human beings. So what did he see when he sat there and looked into his own mind? Firstly, and perhaps most essentially, he saw impermanence and its implications. So he saw that everything, everything is changing. We obviously can, can accept this on one level. We look out the window and the clouds are moving across the sky... The sun rises in the morning, it sets in the afternoon. We breathe in, we breathe out. We can, you, you can think, well, that's obvious. Impermanence is obvious. But he saw there was absolutely nothing that was an exception to that rule. One sense of self, other, buildings. Everything is essentially in a state of flux and change. And uh, just before I say this next point, I'll go back. He saw that we suffer... Our suffering is because we don't get that. So we're continually trying to impose concrete reality or identity to that which is essentially fluid in its nature or essenceless in its nature. And that, of course, brings disappointment and struggle for, for living beings. He also saw, very, very importantly, that actions have consequences. So this mind that he was looking at is also a mind that has... Um, sort of volitional or, or acts. We have mental actions. Our thoughts have an effect. Our words have an effect. Our actions have an effect. 
And if everything's changing all the time, if everything's much, much more fluid than we realise, you, you could see it as like a, a sort of stream of rising and falling that we're taking part in, then we can guide that stream of rising and falling in the direction of the good, in the direction of freedom, or we can guide it in the direction of harm, contraction and suffering. And that everything is rooted in the mind. Very, very simple message. Of course, very difficult to live out. <clears throat> I think this actions having consequences, is, is, it's, an, it's a good way to describe it. It's very easy to understand, but it's actually much, much more complicated than that. It's like you've got this extraordinary, comp- extraordinarily clom- complex rising and falling of myriads of conditions every single moment. And it's, it's a case of opening out to that and, as I say, guiding it gradually, gradually through our choices, moment by moment by moment, in the direction of release, liberation. Of course, to engage in that sort of practice, that sort of mental, um, I'm going to say mental acuity, I don't know if that's actually a word, but this kind of incredible precision about what is actually going on in your life, in your um, thoughts, your emotions, your actions, you need to be awake, you need to be extremely present, which of course most of us aren't. Most of us, I often talk about the pinball or the billiard ball approach to life which is where we're just bouncing off experience in an unaware way. So we're sort of, we, we bounce off something that's unpleasant, I don't want that. Something's pleasant, oh, I want more of that. And we do that from the, mo- the moment we wake up till the moment we go to bed. We're just sort of bouncing off experience in an unaware way. And the Buddha's saying, there's an alternative, you don't have to do that. But you need to know your own mind. You need to know what's actually happening right now to be awake to what's happening right now. So mindfulness is very, very central to the Buddhist tradition. However, it's not a cool, detached, scientific, looking at your mind through the microscope sort of quality that we're talking about. It's very warm, it's very kind, it's very emotionally engaged. So you care about your own mind, you care about your own heart, you care about your life, you care about the life of other people. So in Buddhism, we we bring these two qualities together, incredible awareness, mindfulness, and the deepest kindness, care, and warmth. Interestingly, you can also say that if if we look at this in in practice, um, the world that we live in, we're continually co-creating our experience of things. So an example will be, you all walked into this room this afternoon, sat down in the chair, Maybe you weren't really thinking about who am I or what am I or what's the world like. You were just coming in, sitting down on the chair and you were assuming, well, here I am, I'm Vijimala or whatever. I'm not really changing and I'll, come, I'll go out of the room exactly the same as I arrived. I think that's the way many of us live, isn't it? We just sort of go through our lives without re- reflecting more deeply on these things. However, right now, we're continually conditioning one another. Right now. So I'm sitting here I'm looking into the audience. I might see someone going to sleep. Fortunately, there isn't anyone going to sleep yet. <laughs> but if there was, I'd have a little moment of anxiety. And then you might read that in my body language, a bit of anxiety. And then you might be a wee bit anxious because I'm anxious. And then we get this kind of little flurry of anxiety around the room that no one has essentially caused. But because we're continually sort of impacting on one another, we are... I quite like this word co-creating. We're co-creating our experience of being in this room together. Yeah. People are nodding, looking interested, then I start to feel a bit more secure, a bit more confident, and then maybe I slow down a bit, and then we all just relax a bit. And, yeah. So if you accept that as being true, that comes with a massive responsibility. And the Buddhist path is one of huge self-responsibility. It's not down to God or anything like that. It is down to you and how you choose to respond to your moment-by-moment experience. And if we bring awareness and kindness, momentary awareness and kindness to how we are and how other people are, by implication we can have a huge impact on the world. So this is how you change the world as a Buddhist in a way. You take responsibility for what what waves you're sending out and you try to have those as imbued with awareness and kindness as you possibly can. And you don't know what effect that's going to have. It's just going to ripple on and on and on. 
Conversely, if you're not doing that, you're also going to have an effect. Yeah, everything matters. So every action of body, speech, and mind has an effect. This, I remember when I realised this, I was utterly shocked. Yeah, I think there used to be this phrase that people used: "Stop the world, I want to get off." Have you heard that phrase? Yeah. It's a bit like you could you could choose. I just want to have some time off, having an effect, please. Yeah. But I'm afraid it doesn't come like that. You never get time off having an effect. It's awesome, isn't it? So Buddhist, the Buddhist path is saying, well, okay, grow up, step into that, and try to make sure that your effect is as beneficial as possible, and you can have a massive impact on the world. So choose wisely how you live. So I've got a little quote here from uh, the Dhammapada, which is um, a lovely little book of sayings of the Buddha. Master your words, master your thoughts, never allow your body to do harm. Follow these three roads with purity and you will find yourself upon the one way, the way of wisdom. Just read that again. Master your words, master your thoughts, never allow your body to do harm. Follow these three roads with purity and you will find yourself upon the one way, the way of wisdom. So I've got some more quotes here from the Dhammapada about the primary role of the mind. So this is the very first verse in this, the book, the Dhammapada. What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday, and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. If a person speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows them as the wheel of a cart follows the beast that draws the cart. What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday, and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. If a person speaks or acts with a pure mind, joy follows them as their own shadow. It's gloriously simple, isn't it? You know, so clear, <coughs> such beautiful advice. And do we take it? <laughs> Here's another one which is very strong. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care. And let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. As the shadow follows the body, as we think, so we become. Yeah. Very, very interesting, because of course, things like our character, they seem so fixed, don't they? Our habits, they seem so intractable. And yet they just come from a thought. And we can change those things. So that's looking at the, um, if you like, the sort of vision aspect of the Buddha's insight, what we often call enlightenment, but you can also think of it as awakening. The Buddha is someone who's awake. But he also opened up to a, a sort of um, vast and wondrous way of perceiving things. So not only do we, if we, if we see into impermanence, we see all our mental states rising and falling and so on, but it's like everything starts to soften and broaden and open into a spacious and vast way of being each moment. Um, and it's often called the open dimension of being. So that's the other thing that we're opening up to, a kind of luminous presence that is full of wonder, saturated with wonder. Sometimes called illumined imagination. It's very nice, isn't it? could say it's a direct experience lit by a light beyond egotism. Yeah, so it's not, this is very, very important. Buddhism isn't all just about getting rid of things. It's not just about getting rid of your bad habits, which obviously will be helpful. But in, in transforming our unhelpful habits, we open ourselves up to, to this very rich and beautiful quality that's also always there, but usually it's crushed or oppressed by the sheer weight 
and density of our habits. I often think of my habits as being very, very dense. It's like I've got this kind of open, spacious, luminous kind of quality available to me right now, but it's crushed by this sort of shutters of, of fixed views and habits and so on. So you could say that um, we can use this idea of change to let growth blossom. If everything's changing, that doesn't just mean decay. It also means growth, development. Um, And it's said that growth is natural. Some people say, uh, and I agree with this, that growth is completely natural in this world. If you put a seed in the ground, it grows. If you put potatoes in a cellar, where there's a crack of light across the other side of the room, those potatoes will grow towards the light. I mean, why? They don't have to. I I, I see that as very sort of symbolic. It's a bit like we've all got a longing to grow into our potential, to grow into our fullness. We wouldn't be here this afternoon otherwise. We'd be at the Trafford (laughs) Centre, seeing the hunks and trunks. (laughs) So we kind of, if we get out of our own way, we allow something else to blossom and shine that's also there as part of our experience so here's another little few quotes from the Buddha meditate live purely be quiet do your work with mastery like the moon come out from behind the clouds shine it's nice isn't it yeah and I think images of the Buddha convey something of these qualities of this inner Radiance, inner beauty, inner um, vastness, openness. Yeah, it's a very, very beautiful face of the Buddha. Let me just look at that for a few moments and try to absorb the qualities that that image is communicating. And everyone gets it, I think. Like the image of a Buddha, I think everybody, no matter what your cultural conditioning is, what your faith is, you see a picture like that and you, there is some kind of resonance with the qualities that are being communicated by the image. Okay, so another um, metaphor that I personally like, it's not particularly accurate, I don't think, um, sort of doctrinally, but I think it's very helpful to get a sense of how we perceive things is this is a tapestry okay so you, know, you go into chateaus in France and you see these massive tapestry, tapestries on the wall that depict scenes and you look at it and it looks like it's a, a, a scene it's a hunting scene or it's a pastoral scene or whatever that is now that tapestry is made up of billions of billions of threads so if you went close to that tapestry with a microscope you could go closer and closer and closer to these individual strands and threads that is giving the illusion of this fixed image, this kind of concrete image. And I often think of my practice as a Buddhist is learning to rest in the space between the threads of the tapestry of my life. Learning to rest in the space between the threads of the tapestry of my life. Bringing that sense of resting, calm, openness to this illusion of you know, my life looks like that in some kind of way. It looks like it's got a whole story and narrative and um, fixed identity. But can I live from the space between the threads and keep on making these wise choices, compassionate choices? <coughs> so another very beautiful um, evocation of this is from uh, my teacher, Sangharachita. When you attain enlightenment, you no longer have a will that is separate from that of others. It's as though you utterly, identifies with, utterly identify with others and with what they are doing. You don't experience another person as a sort of brick wall you are coming up against. And you no longer experience yourself as a separate and conflicting solid force. You experience others in a completely different way. They become diaphanous or transparent because your will is not coming into collision with theirs. This completely different, more relaxed, lighter, freer attitude taken to the nth degree is something of the nature of enlightenment. The world is the same, but you see it differently. So I really love that. I think that's very, very beautiful. Sometimes people think of enlightenment as 
going to heaven or something. Um, but it's utterly transforming your relationship with your life right now. The world is the same, but you see it differently. And I really like that quote because so often I do experience um, other people as brick walls I'm crashing into. And I know that they experience me as a brick wall that they're crashing into. And the idea that if I could just soften, loosen, open, relax, um, be wise and kind, then that brick wallness begins to soften and dissolve away. And that is an utterly transformed way of being. So that's all very well and good. Buddha seemed to communicate that two and a half thousand years, years ago very successfully, so successfully that we still have a Buddhist tradition in utterly different cultural contexts. However, how do we really manage to communicate it as well as possible? Yeah? How do we get from the Trafford Centre to those beautiful qualities evoked by the Buddha's face? Well, first thing is I think it's a great challenge. Yeah, I don't really know that we've even begun to scratch the surface of that challenge in the West, certainly. Anybody can wake up. This is a very, very important point of Buddhism. Anyone has the potential to transform their mind, transform their relationship to their habits and other people, and to wake up. So it's a very simple message, but very difficult to communicate. So I would like to suggest that... Um, one way to communicate in the modern world is to cast a very wide net. Maybe net's not a very good word, actually, because it sounds like you're catching people. But cast a very, a very wide um, something out into the world <laughs> so that the, um, the sound of the Dharma, the Dharma is the teaching of the Buddha, will be heard in many, many different places. And one of the um, central things of Buddhism, or central teachings, is the idea of skillful means. That one of the um, things about the Buddha is he was an extremely skillful communicator. And it's said that there's 84,000 gateways to the Dharma. I'm sure that no one's actually counted them, but that's a, a, a symbolic number for thousands and thousands of different ways of accessing the truth of the Buddha. And that's because he taught in at least 84,000 different ways. Because every person he would meet, he would give a, a slightly different angle <coughs> on the teachings. And if you read the, the oldest text of the Buddha, you really get that sense of him talking to real people in a very appropriate way, according to what they needed to hear. So you could argue that there's kind of two extremes within which to bring an ancient tradition into the modern world. Yeah. One is you, you try to change the world to fit Buddhism. So you think your ancient tradition is kind of pure and uncorrupted and the world needs to change in order to be able to hear it. The other is you think that the ancient tradition needs to be adapted and you change the ancient tradition to fit the world. Okay? So they're, obviously they're quite caricatures of the two extremes. But I think that they're there are people in, in modern Buddhism operating from various spectrums along that, um, those two poles. The middle way, I, it, it, one of the other great teachings of the Buddha is the middle way between extremes. So again, the middle way would be the answer, I think, to draw on both approaches as we bring Buddhism into the modern world. Very, very important to maintain right view of what the Buddha taught it's very, very easy to start to kind of fudge it all a wee bit. Well, he didn't really teach impermanence. He taught something like that. If people don't really want to hear that message. The Buddha taught impermanence. Yeah. The Buddha taught that we suffer because we cling to that which is subject to change. You don't change that basic teaching. You can't do that and still call it Buddhism. So we need to be uncompromising, but also continually adapting it. Very interestingly, Buddhism has been poor historically, well, well, so far, in the last uh, 100 years or so, at adapting to the modern world, and strikingly so compared with other main religions. Apparently, um, Sabuti, who's a senior member of our uh, order, he said recently that the impact that Buddhism has on the world is smaller now than at any time in the last 1,000 years, which is interesting, isn't it? Now, like in the West, we might think, well, Buddhism's growing, which it is in the West, 
but we're a very small part of the world. And it's dying out in other countries at quite a rate. And the reasons um, are the four C's. Colonialism, capitalism, communism, Christianity. Yeah. And no doubt consumerism is in there somewhere as well, five C's. So in places like Mongolia, it's been very affected. Communism obviously had a massive effect in Tibet. Um, Christianity is making big inroads in some traditionally Buddhist countries. So it's very urgent that we, make, we find ways to make it relevant. Yeah. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if it died out? This very simple, essential truth of how to um, have a rich and fulfilling life based on awareness and kindness. If that was to die out, it would be a great tragedy for humanity. So how do we um, communicate it with this middle way? On the one hand... Sorry, I just got a bit confused here. Okay, so if we look at the more... I'm using the word conservative, which isn't quite the right word, but if, if you look at it more in terms of maintain, maintaining truth to the tradition, from that side, we need to be very clear what Buddhism is. Radical be willing to be different to the status quo, to stand out as different, to show that we offer a real alternative. I think that's very, very important. If we just make Buddhism a, a sort of touchy-feely, nice way of being, that's not actually a real option, a real alternative for people. Keep the teachings pure and see ourselves as guardians of the tradition. I think that's important. You know? Those of us who are Buddhists and have studied the Buddha's teaching to see ourselves as guardians. And yet... That's the one side. And then the other side, which is being more sort of adaptive, we need to be creative, endlessly creative, adaptive. In business, there's this phrase, innovate or die. It's very, very interesting, particularly in a rapidly changing world like we live in. And I think you could argue the same with um, Buddhism, innovate or die out. Work with prevailing cultural conditions directly. Go out into the world in a range of different ways. Engage with arts and culture to uh, communicate high values. I think that's very, very important. It's a, a, a part of what the Buddha saw was opening to this rich and beautiful way of perceiving things. And arts and culture can um, communicate those values within our own sort of cultural language. Be fearless and be bold. I think that's very, very important. So how might we do that? I'm just going to run through a few different ways that I think we can... Um, be modern Buddhists bringing the teaching of the Buddha into this consumerist materialistic world that's suffering from dis-ease. Okay? So socially engaged Buddhism is quite a well-known um, movement, if you like, development. So it's any way that, that Buddhism is coming into the societies within which it's operating. For example, in India, there's a lot of work being done bringing uh, Buddhism to people to uh, free them from the oppression of caste. Massive social revolution based on the Dharma. Extraordinary. There's environmentally aware Buddhism, deep ecology, that kind of thing, working with trying to um, see the crisis environmentally and ecologically and bringing the Buddhist teachings to bear on that. There's things like Buddhist hospices, health centres and so on. And I think we need to get away from being solely based in Buddhist centres in the West, in our, in our tradition. It's a slightly provocative thing to say, but I think it's very, very important. If you think about it, how many people realistically in our society are going to come through the doors of a Buddhist centre voluntarily? Clearly you all have, which is great, but I bet there's more people at the traffic centre this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. So I think we need to find ways to go out into these places, go out into the world and offer this radical, dif radically different vision. The work that I'm involved in, I think, is uh, a contribution to this dialogue, if you like, dialogue between Buddhism and the culture. So it's called Mindfulness-Based Approaches, is the broad sort of definition. And there's lots of different ways that, that this is coming into healthcare. And it's becoming increasingly recognised within the NHS and so on. So um, working with people with pain and illness, mental health, people with recovery from addictions and so on. Very, very rewarding, wonderful, wonderful work. And people get it. We don't use the B word at all. We don't talk about Buddhism. But people get what we're talking about. 
this idea of impermanence, change, taking responsibility for your mental states, guiding your life towards release and freedom. People really get that. And that's, that language has been spoken, spoken within our hospitals now, which is fantastic. And it just wasn't happening 30 years ago. So there is a mini-revolution going on that I think we should um, embrace and work with because it's very exciting. We can bring values of right livelihood into our work, however we work in the world. We can try to find work which has ethics of non-harm, that's generous, has ethics of generosity in there somewhere. And this can either be fulfilling a basic need for people or helping to relieve suffering in some kind of way or generating financial surplus to fund Buddhist activities. So there's various ways you can look at that. Your work should be creative, ideally, fulfilling for those involved. Sense of community. I think this is very, very important. So there's that sense of connectedness with other beings, that sense, well, I am impacting on these other people, they're impacting on me. How can we make that dance one that's very fulfilling and enriching? And ideally, it's an arena for your spiritual practice, if you happen to, happen to have one and believe in the Buddha's teaching. Mindfulness, emotional positivity, and bringing insight into the nature of things as much as you can into your work. Okay, these have come from, again, from Sabuti, who's just recently written something about this whole era of Buddhism in the modern world. Threats, many threats, many ways it could all go wrong, things to watch out for. On the side of trying to maintain a tradition, you can just be too conservative. Rigidity. Ossification, that's an interesting word. Apparently most spiritual traditions ossify eventually. Losing moisture. Ossification is sort of drying out. Very interesting, isn't it? And I think creativity is very moist. So you need to keep that in there somehow. Being disconnected from the people who actually need the Dharma. Yeah. So speaking as if it's two and a half thousand years ago, well, it's not. And you can come across as very disconnected and it's not helpful. And I think dry idealism can come across as rather aversive to life. Yeah. If I was saying hunks and trunks are bad, mm. not Buddhist, then that's kind of, it's not really speaking the language of my culture. Actually, there's nothing wrong with hunks and trunks. It's just if you go for refuge to them as a source of happiness, you won't get happiness. <laughs> So being a, the sort of aversive, anti-life attitude, that's very unhelpful. And I think many of us, and myself included, you can use the Buddhist ideal as to, to try and escape from your life. And actually we all eventually have to turn that around somehow or other and use the Buddhist ideal to transform our relationship with life and really engage with life very, very strongly. I think at that end one can also be arrogant and, of course, dogmatism is always there, waiting in the wings. The other side is where you water the Dharma down to mere humanism. And I think this is a real risk in the, in the whole mindfulness-based world. Many people are banding the mindfulness word around now, who are, I think haven't a clue what mindfulness is, really. It's just a way of feeling a bit better. Yeah? So it becomes a sort of humanism. That's an issue that we need to watch out for. Just another psychological technique to feel better. Yeah? Another way to manipulate life to get it on your own terms. We can get quite good at this. We start to work with our minds a bit more. And we get better and better at moving the piece of the jigsaw around on the horizontal plane. And we think, well, I'm getting a bit happier. Life's going better. But we're not actually plunging down to see through the fundamental delusions that everything's impermanent and that we cling at our peril. So I think that's a real issue. We lose our radical vision and we forget to look up. Yeah, We're doing this and we forget to look up to wonder. Yeah. So that's, those are real issues. So to maintain the middle way, I think constant vigilance is required. Constant vigilance. And a continual practice of awareness and calibration. So continually finding out, am I becoming a bit too rigid and dogmatic? Am I becoming a bit too flaky? And we need our friends to help us with that. But because everything's changing, it means everything is also able to be calibrated, refined, balanced, poised. We need mindfulness. And we also need this total commitment. This is, if we are Buddhists, we need a total commitment 
to changing ourselves in the world using Buddhist ideals, Buddhist teachings. And we need our friends. We need people to help keep us on track and to help um, inspire us because it's such a hard thing we're trying to do. To work on the human mind is the hardest thing you can do. The hardest thing and the most rewarding endeavour. Okay, so opportunities in the modern world. So this is quite interesting. Very often I think people talk about the modern world as being a sort of catastrophe for, um, you know, we're all sort of heading to doom and gloom, which we may be. Who knows? I mean, we've got 14 billion people at the end of the century. It's not promising. However, there's many things about the modern world that we can embrace and utilise and really make use of. For example, psychology as a science has only been around since 1879. Very interesting. It's only really the last 120 years, something like that. But psychology is very much um, part of our language now in the West, where people are um, working with the mind. So the sort of science of the mind is recent, and it's something that Buddhism can align itself with um, carefully, obviously, because it's not the same as psychology. But we can use the language of the mind in our culture now, and people don't think you're weird. And I think that's very important. Again, science is very much um, established in our culture. You could say it's one of the modern gods. Science is very much about analysing things, looking into things, examining things, finding out what their constituent parts are, and so on. Well, the Dharma has some parallels with that. Again, it's not the same at all. But this whole idea of turning inwards and examining your mind, you can use that language in the West now, and people get more or less what you're talking about. <clears throat> Times past, it was all about spirits outside you, you know, demons and gods outside you. So to talk about, you know, I have a mind and I can transform my mind, would have been quite strange. So we can, we can really make the use of that, um, that language in our culture, so, sort of get in the slipstream and then take it off in the direction of the radical and the profound. I think we can do that. Interesting as well, we're getting some proof that meditation changes the brain. Proof in adverted commas. We're getting evidence on scans that something happens. Yeah. But we love that in the West. We think something's happening, so that means it must be beneficial. So we can use that um, again. And there's been a huge growth in neuroscience in the last 10 years, which is all about brain scanning and things like that, trying to find out what is actually going on in the human mind. You could say it's tremendously misguided because it's sort of associating consciousness with brain and science really doesn't have a clue what consciousness is yet. But again, we can get into the slipstream of that and then take it off and use the language of the Dharma and liberation and the profound. And we do do that at Breathworks. Quite, we're becoming quite adept at that. And it's fantastic. It's like being a secret agent. <laughs> I do really love it. You know, a secret agent for complete and utter transformation in the health system. And people listen. That's the really amazing thing. So here's a lovely picture. People like this sort of thing. Attention training positively changes the brain. So the yellow and red bits are where the cortex, I think, has become thicker. Can you say that? Yeah. It's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, something is definitely happening when we meditate. And there's a lot of studies going on now using very, very experienced meditators in America, putting them in the scanner, telling them to do two minutes of compassion meditation. Okay, pause. Two minutes of concentration meditation. Pause. And they see these extraordinary changes. So, you know, we should really, we should utilise this, this um, appetite in our culture for images and pictures of the brain and uh, use that as a way in for the teaching the Dharma. Another picture of the brain is quite amazing, isn't it? All those different bits in there that <coughs> helps us navigate our way through life. I think this is very modern, isn't it? Yeah. You know, brain scans reveal why meditation works, and you've got all those Facebook, Twitter, all those things that you can send on to everybody. Picture of someone sitting on a beach looking extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> very, very bad meditation posture. But, you know, we, we can... It's, it's in, this is in the language of our culture now. It just wasn't there 30 years ago. You know, when I first started to meditate, 
you told people you were meditating they thought you were really weird. Mm-hmm. These days you tell people you're meditating and it's quite acceptable, quite normal. That is, that's a revolution that I think we should embrace and make the most of. We also have social freedom, some of us. I'm talking about the West now. Particularly new for women. You know, people of my mother's generation, they didn't have access to contraception. They didn't have choice, particularly about reproduction. They couldn't have a, a choice like me to lead. I'm 51 now, and I've led a quite a radically different life um, from most people. I haven't got children. I live in a women's community of, of other Buddhist people. And, um, you know, these freedoms are amazing. And again, we can just take them for granted. Like, I always get really upset when young women don't vote. Because I think, you know, my grandmother fought for that vote. And how quickly we just um, become complacent about the freedoms that we have. Some of us live in peaceful democracies that allow religious freedom. This is remarkable. We can take it for granted. It's remarkable. Here we are in Great Britain. We can have a Buddhist centre and we can practice Buddhism. Look at the Arab Spring happening in the Arab worlds where they don't have those freedoms at all. They're fighting for those freedoms and people are dying. Extraordinary, extraordinary opportunities and they are fragile. We take it for granted and we think it's going to be there forever. It's very fragile. Anything can happen in our culture as well. We're living through a revolution. I find this terribly exciting, I have to say. It has been said the first decade of this century is one of the most influential decades in human history because of the World Wide Web. Yeah? End of the 90s, there was a little bit of internet stuff going on. But now I'm writing this talk. I just Google Dhammapada, get a few quotes, Trafford Center images, get some images, Buddha, hundreds of images of the Buddha. I've got the means to sort of cut out the images, stick them into a PowerPoint, and here we are. Imagine life without Google. (laughs) You know, it's just become so much a part of our culture now. Um, It used to be you wanted to listen to a Dharma talk, you went to your Buddhist centre, you got a cassette out of the library, you took it home, and you listened to it. That was 20 years ago. It's massive, the change in our culture now. And because it's, it's just happening, it's new, and that means it's not yet... Um, it hasn't yet become fundamentalist. It's all, it's all a wee bit chaotic still, which is a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. When something's new, you can be part of shaping how it develops. There, I mean, I, find, I, I feel so excited by all this, I have to say, that I happen to be alive <laughs> through a revolution. It's a little bit like the Industrial Revolution happening in 10 years. Amazing. Yeah. This means the Dharma is available very easily at the click of a button. It just was not like that 20 years ago. 30 years ago, there weren't even very many Dharma books in the West. Extraordinary. Pali Canon Online. There we are. You can get the entire Pali Canon, which is the ancient text of the Buddha online. You can now get it on your Kindle, no doubt, or your iPad. Video Sangha, our very own um, video portal of Dharma talks within our tradition. That wasn't there five years ago. I don't think, was it, Pax Priya? Already, it seems completely normal. You think, well, it hasn't always been there. No, it's new. This is radical. You're going to be able to watch this talk on Video Sangha next week, probably. It wasn't like that five years ago. Free Buddhist Audio, which again is our tradition's um, audio resources, text resources. Any Dharma talk that's ever been given and recorded in our tradition is now there at the click of a button. It's fantastic. And if Andrew can now put the sound on, I'm going to play you a little video. This is an example of when you get um, someone who's a meditation teacher teamed up with an advertising person, clearly quite a lot of money, and very, very good animation skills. And again, this is the sort of thing we can do now to communicate the Dharma. Sounds not working, Andrew. I don't know how to stop it either. It's all a bit new still. It's not sorted out yet. Okay, what are we going to do, Andrew? 
Okay. Okay, so here's a mind, and here's all the stuff that's happening in your mind, and you were cl- we're clearing the mind, okay? And he's talking about having a clear mind, and here's little eyes, that's your emotions, looking at your emotions as they come up, <laughs> and your feelings as they come up. <laughs> Normally we're not aware of these things, but you have the ability to be aware of them. And then what's going to happen? We're blinking. Blinking again, and they're dissolving away. And here's your mind. And we don't always like what's in our mind. And the head's going to go into a funny shape in a minute. See, don't really like that. We're looking at the mind. And we've got all sorts of things in there, like old shopping trolleys and traffic cones. And we're just watching that. (coughs) We're just floating through and watching that. There it is. And now we've got a happy mind pop and it all just goes away all that stuff goes away and you're left with a sense of having let go of the shopping trolleys and the traffic cones and all the other contents of your mind yeah it's a real shame the sound didn't work because they're really good these so it's a it's a website called getsomeheadspace.com and you may be able to find these but they're very very good and it's an example of the sort of thing that ideally we would all be doing like in our tradition as well these fantastic little short animations telling you how to free your mind fantastic okay so the last point I want to make is what I'm calling the need for living portals I'm using the language, our modern language of portals, we don't know what a portal is now because we're world wide web people it's kind of gateway it's a way of accessing one dimension to another on the web or if you're a Doctor Who fan have lots of portals (laughs) and I love to think of people who are really um exemplary dharma practitioners as being portals. I love that. They're sort of portals to another way of being, another way of perceiving things. So we need living examples of followers of the Buddha's path. And I think this is the most powerful tool for transformation in society. Everything I've said so far maybe has convinced you to some degree, but in a way it's all just words. But when you meet somebody who really embodies the teachings, it can have a huge effect on you. People who are kind, people who are mindful, people who tread lightly. You do feel that, don't you, with people who are really um, deeply in their practice of transforming their reactions to life. They, they start to tread more lightly on this world. People who go against materialism, consumerism. That's very inspiring when I meet people like that. People who live simply. Now again, this is... I think something that I haven't heard many people talk about, but I find this very encouraging, that 30 years ago in the West, in our tradition, there was our teacher, Sangharakshita. 40 years ago, there was our teacher, Sangharakshita, and some young people who were very, very inspired by him and wanting to learn from him. But you had, in a way, one person who stood out, and that person had a particular character, particular life story, particular way of being, Okay. Now, in, in our tradition, and I'm, I only know our tradition in any depth, we've got many, many people who have been practicing the Dharma for 30 or 40 years. And they've got people who are married, people who are, who are living in monasteries, people who live up a mountain, people who work in the world. We have men, we have women. We have people who are introverts and extroverts. So we see the Dharma lived out in a wide range of different ways now. And I find that very, very inspiring Um, because you can sort of find your own way in by um, seeing kind of your your particular habitual ways of being as it were sort of uh, uh, the transformation of those expressed in someone a bit like you and I think that's very very beautiful and important so I personally find it very very inspiring that we've now got so many people who I feel are living portals to a radically different way of being and I cherish that So this is quite a statement, isn't it? I'm a Buddhist because of the people I met, not primarily because of the teachings. Yeah. So I went on a weekend retreat, 1987, 24 years ago. Didn't know anything about Buddhism. I didn't really understand a single thing they talked about on that weekend retreat. <laughs> However, I was astonished by the people. Astonished. 
and I have not looked back since then. And what was most amazing about them, here we are, was what I call this quality of being extraordinarily ordinary. That's what I saw in those people. They weren't trying to be someone, weren't trying to be special, weren't putting a, a front on, weren't performing. And so many people in the world, so many of us, we perform, don't we? We sort of get up in the morning, we put our kind of front on, and we go through the day with the narrative of I, my life, that we're chief actor of. These people that I met, they weren't doing that. They were sort of extraordinarily comfortable in their own skins. They weren't sort of special people. They weren't even remarkable in a certain kind of way. But they were remarkable in their ability to occupy their own skin and to be um, aware and honest about what was happening moment by moment. I found that very, very enticing. And that's why I'm a Buddhist. I have learned various teachings along the way. But I would say I'm, st- I'm still a Buddhist because of the people I look up to and what they embody. Oops, what's happened? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, here we are, good. Okay. Probably in 20 years' time, we're no longer in a revolution, and this would never happen. We'll all be, I'll just have to think things, and it will all happen. So just to summarise, yeah. So I've suggested that the world's in a state. You don't have to agree with me. That the consumerist, materialistic economic model will not lead to happiness and fulfilment. Our entire economic model now is based on consumption. You have to shop in order to buy the products that the people make and the people's wages are paid by your shopping. So when we had the big um, crash a couple of years ago, the government pumps all this money into the economy so we keep shopping. So that is our whole economic model. I don't know quite what's going to happen. It doesn't seem very sustainable, but that certainly doesn't seem to bring happiness and fulfilment. And I say that because of the limited resources and the sense of dis-ease that many people have. I've suggested that Buddhism offers a radical alternative. We look into the mind as the source of our discontent and we become awake and free by cultivating values of awareness and kindness and also, very importantly, by opening up to wonder. How to communicate it in the modern world? Middle way between conservatism and liberalism, these two poles. Maintain our core values and vision in an uncompromising way and yet be continually creative, adaptive and responsive to the conditions we find ourselves in. And I think that's a continual process that never ends. And we can use aspects of the modern world to our advantage. It's not all bad. We can use media and the World Wide Web in particular. And we've also got this whole language of working with the mind in modern psychological discourse that we can take advantage of, I think. And most importantly, we need portals. We need to have living examples of what does it look like to put these teachings into practice in your own life. And these are also great heroes and heroines who are meeting the challenge of the hardest work of all, which is to look directly into your own mind and heart, unflinchingly, and to grow and develop. And personally, I find that utterly inspiring when I meet that. And I hope that you do as well. So I think Buddhism can survive. I'm not saying it will. I'm saying it can. To the extent that it's lived and communicated in an accessible inspiring and appealing way yeah. it's not a done deal by any means but it can and it will survive to the extent that this is done yeah. so that's a sort of exhortation for all of us Buddhist or not here really even if you come today don't know anything about Buddhism you do know something about working with your own mind and that is the task that we're all given to keep these teachings alive okay <laughs> Just in case you've forgotten about the hunks in the trunks. Yeah? Good news in a way. It's appealing for the moment. Bad news. Even hunks and trunks get old. No one is immune to old age and decay. So a hunk and trunks may well give you temporary satisfaction. Yeah? Or the babes, babes in the background. But will it last... You'll get old, he'll get old, or she'll get old. 
that means we're stuck in the cycle of desire and loss. You could say that's part of our deep problem as human beings. We're stuck in the cycle of desire and loss, and that leads to the sense of discontent. Buddha's example is a much more reliable refuge. It's a totally secure and safe refuge. We know we can trust the teaching of the Buddha, and we know that through our own experience. However little we've practiced, we know that when we do begin to turn towards our own mind, our own heart, take responsibility for it, we're standing on much more sort of safe ground within ourselves. And we get confident, we get open, we get expansive. (laughs) So there we are. That would be quite amazing, wouldn't it? If we could build a massive Buddha in the middle of the Trafford Centre and that was seen as normal. That would be quite extraordinary, wouldn't it? So I'm just going to finish with a couple of other little readings from the Dhammapada. Actually, I'm not, they're, they're not from the Dhammapada, just from the Buddhist tradition. By day the sun shines, and the warrior in his armour shines. By night the moon shines, and the master shines in meditation. But day and night, those who are awake shine in the radiance of their spirit. With a quiet mind, come into that empty house, your heart, and feel the joy of the way beyond the world. Look within, the rising and falling. What happiness, how sweet to be free.